Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of the American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about an issue. Well, there's probably no more controversial issue uh, regarding the American founding than this one that we're going to talk about today. The issue is Thomas Jefferson and slavery. Uh, we are joined for this conversation today with a friend of mine, a friend of the Ashbrook Center, and a wonderful scholar. I'll assert the best young scholar on Thomas Jefferson in America today, Dr. Kara Rogers Stevens. Um, Kara teaches uh, history here at Ashland University. She works with Ashbrook in our student, teacher, and citizen programs. She is a terrific teacher, a wonderful colleague, um, an amazing scholar, and frankly, too good for her husband, Jason Stevens. Kara, <laughs> thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you so much for having me. I feel a real pressure now to perform after that introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> You've got a new book out, and it's called Thomas Jefferson and the Fight Against Slavery um, with Kansas University Press, a wonderful press in American history and political thought. Um, but honestly, Kara, if you don't mind my skeptical question to start with, why does the world need another book about Thomas Jefferson? Well, uh, there certainly have been quite a few books written about Jefferson. Uh, I would say Jefferson is one of the most controversial figures in American political life, and he always has been because he's the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. So when Americans think of the founding father who most represents American ideals or ideas, they think of Jefferson. And so Jefferson gets appropriated and reappropriated and reinterpreted by every new generation of Americans. I believe we all have to wrestle with him and the significance of Jefferson and his words and actions for America. That also means that he's very misunderstood uh, and I've been happy to find it means that there is room for another book. There is room for another conversation that's specifically geared toward what people today care about when it comes to Jefferson. And of course, right now, that really is slavery. And so that's what I focused on in my work. And what's interesting to me about your book is that it's connected. Your book is connected to Thomas Jefferson's book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Tell me about um how you got connected with or started with Jefferson's own book so it started in a rather boring way I was in graduate school and I needed a dissertation topic and so I went to my advisor and said what hasn't been already said and done about this this guy Thomas Jefferson and my advisor said well nobody's written an intellectual biography or no historian has written an intellectual biography of Jefferson's only full-length published book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Um, so I started out 
with the idea that I would fill that gap in the scholarship by writing a history of Thomas Jefferson's book. But the more I read the book, the more I realized that what I really cared about was Thomas Jefferson's position on slavery and reconciling the seeming contradiction. How could the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence also have owned slaves and, and kind of said some controversial things on the issues of race and slavery? And I realized that notes on the state of Virginia could actually give us some answers to those questions. Well, obviously, uh, race, slavery and race more broadly has been a vexed issue in America, continues to be a vexed issue, certainly has been throughout our history. What led you to want to study this difficult and controversial issue? So I've had an interesting journey toward Thomas Jefferson. And I think that um, for me, it began because I was not born in America. Uh, I'm an adopted America. It's become my home. Um, I was initially born in South Africa. And when I was living in South Africa, I would say, I always tell my students, South Africa basically was like Jim Crow laws, but on steroids. Uh, there was a white minority government who had set out to literally develop the, the best, most racist system of government in world history. Uh, and their their system of laws was called apartheid, um, which you could translate apartness. So the laws were designed to keep all of the different racial groups, ethnic groups in South Africa apart from one another. And I grew up uh, having to live in a specific designated neighborhood, go to a specific school, specific swimming pools, only associate with certain people, everything restricted by race. Uh, and I hated it. Uh, and my family, my parents, fortunately, taught me to hate it. Um, and so coming to America for us was about the freedom to live where we wanted to live, to read what we wanted to read, to think how we wanted to think, uh, and to have the friends and the relationships that we wanted to have without being restricted according to artificial racial boundaries. And the founding fathers were really important to me growing up because as an immigrant, I was searching for a way to create an American identity for myself. And the founders and the Declaration of Independence in particular were such welcoming and inclusive documents uh, that seemed to indicate that people of all backgrounds and races and ethnicities were all welcome, all considered equal and free here in America. So that's why I was interested in the Declaration, why I was interested in Jefferson, and why I was particularly troubled the more I got into Jefferson as a slave owner, because that uh, that seems to contradict that wonderful idea of the Declaration that we're all equal and free. Yeah, and that's certainly a charge that was, was as you say, it's not new today. It was our, our, uh, made against Jefferson even during his lifetime, but it certainly has renewed in its importance and um, uh, vigor against Jefferson today. How could, I think a lot of our listeners wonder, a lot of Americans wonder, Jefferson, who wrote the magnificent words, the Declaration, that all men are created equal endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How could that person have owned slaves? Well, some historical context is very helpful. 
And one important fact to recall is that when Jefferson was born in 1743, slavery was legal just about everywhere in the world with the exception of Western Europe. Western Europeans had stopped enslaving one another, uh, although there were still uh, many of them enslaving people from other places of the world as part of their colonial uh, enterprises. But slavery for somebody like Thomas Jefferson was a natural state of life. He would have grown up only knowing African people in the context of slavery. And there were no organized abolitionist movements um, at the time that Jefferson was uh, a young man. And when he was 14 years old, Jefferson's father died and Thomas Jefferson inherited several dozen human beings. Um, he could not have freed them as a young man, even if he'd wanted to, because um, the law in Virginia was designed to keep up that system of slavery. So you could not free an individual slave without going to the governor and getting special permission uh, in order to do so. So Jefferson was raised in a system that supported slavery. He was a product of that system. What's remarkable about Jefferson is that he turned his life to tearing that system down. Um, and I think that's partly because Jefferson was living during the Age of Enlightenment and he was surrounded by Enlightenment ideas of natural rights, partly because he started fighting for those natural rights in the War of Independence, maybe partly also because of some religious ideas that were becoming more and more popular around that time that focused on the equality of mankind. Uh, but Jefferson really is somebody who could have focused on just maintaining the status quo and keeping up the system that made him rich and powerful. And instead, he seems to have devoted a lot of time and energy to tearing that system down. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because in your book, you make an argument that there is actually a lot of evidence that Jefferson consistently opposed slavery and was not a flip-flopper or evolved in some dramatic way and changed his views. What is some of that evidence? That's a great question. So Jefferson um, started out as a young lawyer. Um, we think that he must have started opposing slavery when he was at the College of William and Mary. Uh, and we think that because there were several professors and mentors that Jefferson had who were anti-slavery. And in the years immediately following college as a young lawyer, Jefferson took on six pro bono freedom suits. So suits for individuals who couldn't pay Jefferson worked for free, uh, and he attempted to get freedom for these individuals, and he argued things like, under the law of nature, all men come into the world free uh, and with a right to their own person. As far as we know, he lost all of those cases, but it's significant that he did try. Um, we know that Jefferson, as a young legislator in 1769, tried to get a law passed in Virginia that would have just allowed individual owners to manumit their slaves that law was struck down and caused quite a bit of controversy. Then we know that in 1776, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he didn't just write that famous phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Jefferson also included in his original rough draft of the Declaration, an entire paragraph condemning the slave trade in the strongest possible terms, referring to the slave trade as an affront against human rights, sacred rights, um, and, and making it very clear that when he used that word men, he wasn't just referring to white males. 
He used it also to refer to individuals being bought and sold in slave markets, including Black men, Black women, and Black children. So Jefferson seems to have been quite comfortable making it very public as a young man that he opposed slavery. He also wrote uh, a law that would have um, set forth the pattern for Americans um, moving out into the Northwest Territory or all new federal territories in 1784. Jefferson included a proviso that would have ended slavery in all American territories from the year 1800 onward. Unfortunately, that part of uh, Jefferson's proposal failed because one guy from New Jersey got sick, didn't show up for the vote, and so New Jersey couldn't vote in favor of that anti-slavery wow. proviso. Wow. So that's 1784. By 1785, Jefferson was working on his book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Uh, and in his book, he included a constitution that he wrote for the state of Virginia that would have ended slavery in Virginia after 1800. Unfortunately, that constitution didn't go anywhere. Uh, he also included an emancipation amendment that he had written that um, set forth a comprehensive plan for freeing Virginia slaves, educating them in whatever area they were personally talented in, uh, expatriating them, creating a colony or a country for those enslaved people, and then supporting them until they became a free and independent nation. So those are just a few of Jefferson's anti-slavery actions, starting from a young man going through the middle of his career. He said less about slavery the further he got into uh, national politics. So um, as president, the one thing that he did do that was really important was uh, at the earliest possible moment, he encouraged Congress to end America's participation in the transatlantic slave trade. And he once again called the slave trade a violation of rights. Um, and by the end of his life, Jefferson was writing private letters where he again condemned slavery and reiterated his commitments to emancipation and expatriation, the same things that he had been saying as a younger man. Can you say more, a little bit more about his book and the way that he talks about slavery in the notes of state in Virginia? Uh, I know that it was probably revised by him uh, or certainly came out in different editions, the United States and Europe. What did Jefferson say in the notes about slavery? So Jefferson started out his book, Notes on the State of Virginia, with a short paragraph condemning slavery in the chapter on manners, which is another um, word essentially for the culture of Virginia. So he chose to focus on slavery as a problem in that chapter, condemning slavery. And then he also mentioned it when he discussed his Emancipation Amendment, and again, when he discussed the issue of race. And in his section on race, Jefferson summarized contemporary European science on that issue, and he added some of his own observations about the African Americans he had grown up with. And those observations um, tended to be quite prejudiced. They were the observations of a slaveholder who believed that the white race was showing signs of superiority. Jefferson sent a copy of his manuscript to a friend of his, uh, the, the gentleman who had served as secretary for the Continental Congress throughout its tenure, a man named Charles Thompson. And Charles Thompson was, by this point, um, a prominent Philadelphian and a scientist in his own right. Thompson read through the manuscript 
And he wrote Jefferson a fascinating letter where he said, essentially, Jefferson, I agree with you uh, on what you've said about these issues of race, but because I think that it is possible that the white race might be superior, and, and I agree with you in the way that you phrased this, I also think some people might believe that you are excusing slavery. And for that reason, I would completely delete the entire section on race. Now, Jefferson got this critique, and one of the most incredible things I learned while I was doing the research for my book is we can actually look back at the original manuscript of Notes on the State of Virginia. And by tracing the way that Jefferson edited this book before and after he got Charles Thompson's letter, we can see that Jefferson took this critique very seriously. He didn't delete the entire section on race, but he changed it significantly. Well, he added words, yes. He added words like suspicion. Uh, I say this as a suspicion only, whether the white race is superior or not. Uh, he softened some of his conclusions on race. He made it more clear that these were conclusions that were open to further discoveries in the realm of science. And most significantly, Jefferson doubled the length of his anti-slavery chapter, the manners chapter. And instead of just being a condemnation of slavery from the position of a statesman, Jefferson changed and he added passages on how slavery corrupted Virginian children that a child growing up watching their parents interact with enslaved people is a child who will be nursed, educated, and daily exercised in tyranny. Jefferson predicted the downfall of the Virginian Republic. He said not only would it destroy Virginians' morals, but it would bring God's judgment. Uh, if there would be a slave uprising, God would be on the side of the slaves and the white people deserve to die. In other words, Jefferson made it very, very clear that he was not on the side of slavery. And he did everything he could in the revised version of his book to persuade his fellow prejudiced Virginians that it was in their best interest to free their slaves. Well, that's a very strong condemnation, um, a striking moral tone, as you say, that the book gets revised. Um, I think though, the question that comes to my mind is probably one that comes to mind of a lot of our listeners. If the young Jefferson was this um, convicted in his anti-slavery, pro-freedom principles, mm -hmm. he himself still owned slaves. Yes. He didn't free all his slaves. Why not? So that's a good question. It's, uh, it's not an easy one to answer, but there are a few things that, again, we need to know for context. One of the most significant is that Jefferson um, died very deeply in debt. And so whereas George Washington was a wealthy, prosperous farmer who didn't really say very much against slavery, but at the end of his life freed his enslaved property in his will and actually left money to support those people so that they wouldn't Im immediately struggle to set up their, their lives as free people. Thomas Jefferson died bankrupt, uh, about a million dollars in debt in today's money. And the law in Virginia at that time said, if you were in debt, you could not free your enslaved property. They had to be sold as, as uh, payment for your debts. So Jefferson could not free his slaves. Uh, he had to get special permission in order to free five individuals in his will. 
Uh, and that's one reason. Another reason is because to the end of his life, Jefferson kept on arguing that wholesale emancipation was necessary in Virginia, that he was hoping that younger generations would pass an emancipation law that would apply to all enslaved people and would make it possible for there to be a new country created for those enslaved people to live in. Jefferson argued that this was a form, in our modern word, uh, of reparations. This is a way of giving back to those people who had had this massive injustice committed against them to be freed, to be educated, and to be supported in the creation of their own separate republic where they could rule themselves. Before we continue with our discussion, I'd like to let you know about an outstanding set of programs that Ashbrook sponsors for high school students, the Ashbrook Academy. Do you know any students with an interest in American history, politics, economics, and literature? Do they enjoy being academically challenged and the thrill of engaging with different ideas and viewpoints? Hi, I'm Sabrina Maristella, Student Programs Coordinator here at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Academy is a series of summer courses for rising high school juniors and seniors. Held in person at Ashland University, the Academy immerses you in the American story like you've never been before. Since 2015, our approach has taken history out of textbooks and into students' lives with historical documents and conversations about those documents. If you are a rising high school junior or senior, or if you know someone who is, we invite you to learn more about our courses and apply today at ashbrookacademy.org. He certainly had correspondence in his later years with a number of young men in Virginia and the United States about the issue of slavery. Uh, his anti-slavery principles were known by a number of people, of course. Um, he, You talk a little bit about his correspondence with a, a, a man named William Short mm. and the importance in your mind of help that correspondence in understanding Thomas Jefferson's own mind about slavery. Yeah, so William Short um, is somebody that scholars knew about for a long time as Thomas Jefferson's secretary. And he's also been recognized as one of America's first career diplomats. But what we've recently discovered is that William Short and Thomas Jefferson actually had an incredibly close bond William Short was orphaned at 19, came to live with the Jefferson family, uh, studied under Jefferson for the bar exam, and then gave up a promising political career in Virginia and a seat on the governor's council at age 25 to go and serve as Jefferson's personal secretary when Jefferson was our ambassador to France in the 1780s. And while they were in France together, Jefferson and Short seemed to have developed a very close friendship and a close partnership when it came to dreaming about possible ways to get Virginia away from the system of slavery. They started researching a European form of sharecropping, something called metayage, an ancient form of sharecropping going back to Roman times. Uh, it was still being practiced in parts of Italy and France. William Short traveled around Europe studying how this form of sharecropping worked and writing letters back to Jefferson about how it could be modified to work for enslaved people in Virginia. And their plan was they would set up farms in Virginia with 
perhaps people imported from Germany. Jefferson thought Germans made good, hardworking American citizens, and they wouldn't come with any prejudices. Set up farms with these German immigrants side by side with Jefferson's slaves and give them charge over parcels of land and then allow them to rent that land from Jefferson and at the end of every harvest pay Jefferson back with a share of the crops. And Jefferson said children who were raised in that system of sharecropping would learn to be, in his words, good citizens which is remarkable. So for a period of time in the late 1780s, while he was living in Europe, Jefferson stopped talking about the need for racial separation, for giving Black people their own republic. And he started imagining a future where Black people could be good citizens, perhaps even in America, living side by side with new immigrants to America, um, getting the habits that they would need to successfully compete in a free market as farmers. So did did uh, his did William Short's time with Jefferson influence him to become anti-slavery? It's my belief, absolutely, that yes, William Short also was a graduate of the College of William and Mary. Uh, perhaps he read some of the same Enlightenment texts. He had the same law professor as Thomas Jefferson did, and then studying so closely with Thomas Jefferson himself. William Short absolutely seems to have come into agreement with Jefferson about the evil of slavery and the necessity of emancipation for the future of Virginia. And Short took it even further. Short remained in Europe um, for several more years after Jefferson went back to America to become Secretary of State under George Washington. And while he was in Europe, William Short kept writing Jefferson letters uh, about the future of, of ending slavery in Virginia, about their possibility of starting these tenant farming plans, even about the possibility of racial intermarriage between white and black people in America, which was a, a highly controversial topic at the time. But for William Short, living especially in Spain, where people had a, a darker skin tone, William Short was able to imagine a future where white and black were not so strictly separated for one another, um, that people could intermarry and successfully live as racially mixed Americans. Uh, if Short was influenced by Jefferson, are there others who were influenced by Jefferson on the issue of slavery, or were his views really secret and, and quiet and not known? So one of the things I argue in my book is that when Thomas Jefferson wrote Notes on the State of Virginia, and when he got that advice from Charles Thompson about how he needed to be clear on the issue of slavery, Jefferson actually started to think if he could get his book into the hands of young Virginians, men who had grown up in the atmosphere of revolution and liberty, they could perhaps take his ideas and, and the ideas of natural rights and equality and actually implement them in practical ways in Virginia. Jefferson initially said he was scared that if his book was published, perhaps it would provoke a backlash. It would aggravate old school um, Virginians who were more set in their ways with racism and, and, and slavery. And so initially, he even said he didn't want to publish it widely. He just wanted to privately print this book. But the book got away from him. A, an unscrupulous French bookseller published a French version. It was translated into English without Jefferson uh, wanting it to. And so he agreed to, to publish it properly. And uh, he sent 
copies of this book to young men at the College of William and Mary. And he specifically said his hope was that these college students would read it and that they would be brave enough and, and bold enough to actually start the process of emancipating Virginia's slaves. And there's evidence that Jefferson's plan worked to a certain extent. So, for example, um, one of the first copies of Jefferson's book got sent to a young man named Thomas Mann Randolph, who was studying actually at the University of Edinburgh at the time. This young man read Jefferson's book, ended up marrying Jefferson's daughter, and became the governor of Virginia in uh, 1820. So Jefferson was still alive. Uh, the Missouri crisis was going on, and Jefferson's son-in-law, Jeff Thomas Mann Randolph, put forth an anti-slavery bill for the Virginian Assembly, argued that slavery was wrong, needed to end, was going to corrupt Virginia, roundly defeated. I mean, completely rejected by the Virginian Assembly. But Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter where he said he was so proud uh, of the courage of his son-in-law in proposing this plan. Uh, a few years later, Thomas Jefferson's grandson, uh, a young, young man named Thomas Jefferson Randolph, um, also led the Virginian Assembly in debating an anti-slavery bill. And other Virginians, uh, by this point it was 1831, other Virginians said, there's no way that ending slavery is possible. Not even Thomas Jefferson did it. He couldn't have really meant it because if he'd really meant it, he would have freed his own slaves. And Jefferson's grandson was able to stand up and say, no, my grandfather really did mean it. He said he was against slavery in 1776. He said it again at the end of his life. His sentiments have always been before the public. And here's my version of an anti-slavery bill. My grandfather would want us to pass this law. Unfortunately, once again, Virginians rejected this emancipation plan. And that was the last time that Virginians publicly debated ending slavery until the Civil War. What about Thomas Jefferson's effect in later decades on public figures? Were there any who were influenced by his anti-slavery principles or writings? Yes, there's one of my favorite stories is uh, a Union general, Winfield Scott. Um, he published his memoirs in 1864. And by this stage, he was um, getting up there in age. Uh, he published in his memoirs that he had been a young man at the College of William and Mary. And he said that when he was a student, he and most of his classmates were persuaded when they read Thomas Jefferson's book, Notes on the State of Virginia, uh, in favor of gradual emancipation. So here we have a, a hero of the Civil War saying his abolitionist tendencies went back to his time as a college student, just as Jefferson had hoped um, that book would have that effect on young men. There is evidence that it did on some young men. Um, uh, again, I think our listeners uh, would be thinking, okay, if Jefferson was publicly committed to anti-slavery, even throughout his life, he influenced others to be anti-slavery. Again, the question of his personal conduct, though, um, not only in maintaining his own slaves, which, as you say, was legally complicated, especially because he was so deeply in debt, but also, of course, Sally Hemings and the whole controversy about Sally Hemings. Um, I know it started as a, a political rumor way back when Jefferson was running for office, but I think brought up by his enemies. But 
What about Sally Hemings? What about that rumor? And in your scholarly opinion, is it true? A loaded question. So you're absolutely right. Uh, there was a man named James Callender, who was one of the original tabloid journalists of the early republic, uh, had worked for Jefferson and then turned against Jefferson in 1802. He's the first to publish um, a story that Thomas Jefferson was the father of children with an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings. Now, Callender was dismissed by a lot of Jefferson's supporters, and rightly so, because he was known for um, attacking politicians, um, kind of dredging up the worst things that he could possibly say. He's the one who also published a, an attack on Alexander Hamilton for his um, extramarital affair. Um, but Callender was also known for, for making things up, for highly exaggerating things. So a lot of people rejected the rumor. Jefferson's own family members heartily denied the rumor. They did acknowledge that um, there was an enslaved woman named Sally Hemings um, who lived at Monticello. She was a member of the Hemings family um, who were considered and are still today considered to be relatives of Thomas Jefferson's wife. Um, Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, uh, her father had had a relationship with an enslaved woman, had had multiple children by her, and those children were then the property of Martha Jefferson and had come to Monticello with her when she married Thomas Jefferson. Martha Jefferson then passed away after 10 years of marriage to Thomas, that Hemings family remained. And Thomas Jefferson's white family members acknowledged that there were a lot of enslaved people at Monticello who had very light-colored skin. But Thomas Jefferson's children and grandchildren argued that any resemblance to Thomas Jefferson was because another male relative of Jefferson had had children with Sally Hemings. And those rumors died away. Uh, they were brought back in 1873 by Sally Hemings' son, Madison. And he was interviewed by a um, newspaper, actually in Ohio, uh, where we currently are, uh, and this Ohio newspaper was um, not known to be friendly toward Jefferson, but they interviewed Madison Hemings, and Madison Hemings said, Thomas Jefferson was my father. Sally Hemings had gone to Paris as a servant to Thomas Jefferson's daughters after Jefferson's wife died. And according to Madison Hemings, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings um, had started a relationship in Paris and Sally Hemings had become pregnant, but she had decided to remain in Paris as a free woman. And that was her right. French law dictated enslaved people who went to France um, became free. And according to Madison Hemings, Thomas Jefferson actually came to an agreement with Sally Hemings that she would return with him to Virginia and in exchange would receive good treatment for the rest of her life and any children that she had would receive their freedom when they reached the age of 21. Um, and so Madison Hemings's story was believed widely by some. Uh, it was certainly accepted by his descendants. Other Americans rejected the story as a continuation of the attack ad. And then the story came back uh, in the 1970s. Um, people started raising this question again, especially raising the issue of how um, perhaps a lot of white historians have unfairly ignored the voices of Black Americans like Madison Hemings and not taken his evidence seriously enough. And then in 1998, uh, some DNA results were published um, 
And there was analysis that was done on one child of Sally Hemings, one descendant of a male Jefferson family member, um, and then a couple of other individuals as well to see if they could prove any links between the family. So here's what we know for sure. We know for sure that a male in the Thomas Jefferson family line did father Sally Hemings' youngest son, Eston Hemings. What we don't know for sure is whether that male was Thomas Jefferson or whether it was his brother or another close relative. Um, and there's a, a big scholarly debate about this. Um, you can read widely different analyses of the evidence. It's, I think, something that will continue to be debated um, unless further DNA testing can, can close the gap and give us even more conclusive evidence one way or, or another. In your mind, does the Sally Hemings issue um, change the way we should evaluate Jefferson's words that he spoke against slavery? My students and I had a great debate about that exact question the other day. Um, there's three ways that people can now view, kind of three extreme ways that we can now think of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. One possibility is to think um, of Thomas Jefferson as a rapist, and that is the conclusion that some Americans have come to. Uh, obviously, if he's had a, a child with an enslaved woman, um, she could not have given consent in the way that we now today think of consent. Other individuals think that if Jefferson was the father of children with Sally Hemings, this actually puts him in a more favorable light because he was able to transcend perhaps the prejudices of his day and find long-term happiness and companionship in a relationship with a woman of color. Uh, the foremost scholar of the Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson relationship, um, a scholar named Annette Gordon-Reed, argues that the evidence indicates that the relationship was um, as consensual as was possible for that day and time, and that it was uh, a long-term choice that Sally Hemings made, and therefore shows the humanity of Thomas Jefferson in a new way, that he was able to have this relationship under the constraints of that time. The third possibility is, of course, um, silence, that there is no way of knowing conclusively what the relationship was, and therefore we need to evaluate Thomas Jefferson's life and words based on what we do know for sure. Um, for myself personally, I believe that Thomas Jefferson on his best days uh, was a scientist, was somebody who was open to evaluating new evidence as it came before him, and that he was also an optimist, that he unfailingly believed in the ability of humans to become morally better uh, to improve over time. I hope that Jefferson, if he were to be alive today, would reject the things that he said that were prejudiced and that he would embrace a multiracial America, that he would embrace the fullness of those words in the Declaration of Independence and the, the society that those words have made possible. And so uh, I like to think that if Jefferson was the father of children with Sally Hemings, he would now fully embrace that and publicly embrace that and discuss um, the possibilities of, of a multiracial America much more freely.
But I also, as a historian, say I don't know 100%. I can't really get inside Jefferson's head and psychoanalyze him. And I don't know exactly what the status of his relationship was. So I try to, I try to be content with silence on that particular issue. As a historian who's now written this book, Thomas Jefferson and the Fight Against Slavery, um, your conclusion about whether Thomas Jefferson was a force for or against slavery in the United States? I think the best um, way of answering that question, was Thomas Jefferson a force for or against slavery in the United States, is to look at the Confederacy, to look at the words in particular of the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. Uh, and as the Confederacy was getting its start, as they were uh, writing their own constitution, Alexander Stevens gave a speech now known as the Cornerstone Address, in which he just completely rejected Thomas Jefferson and said, Thomas Jefferson believed that all men are created equal, but he was wrong. That was an error. And his error has, uh, has led to the flawed United States, which the Confederacy, of course, rejected and withdrew from. And Alexander Stevens repudiated Thomas Jefferson and his legacy and said, the Confederacy is the first country that will be founded on this great moral principle, the, the, the truth of white superiority to black. Alexander Stevens had to reject Thomas Jefferson because you cannot take Thomas Jefferson and his words and his life seriously and still think that he supported slavery. Despite the fact that Jefferson was never able to completely disentangle himself from that institution, it was fundamentally opposed to everything that he believed and he stood for. And I think that the words of his son-in-law and of his grandson and the consistent, um, the consistency of Jefferson's words and, and attempted actions throughout the course of his life show us that he genuinely opposed slavery and that he contributed to the fight against slavery in innumerable ways in America. Wow, what a fascinating look into a complex, intriguing, and monumentally important American, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, for our listeners, the book is Thomas Jefferson and the Fight Against Slavery, Kansas University Press by Dr. Cara Rogers Stevens. Let me heartily recommend it to you all. Uh, it's a wonderful piece of scholarship, uh, very thoughtful in just the way you've heard this conversation today. Cara, thanks again for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.